Oh man, here comes Harrison Ford in the 80s. It's a whole new era of the Ford Fiesta. Yep, and today we talk about Star Wars Episode Five. Okay, so that's, uh, that's Attack of the Clones. No, 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 that's the fifth Star Wars movie. Right, so this was Ford's fifth appearance as Han Solo? No, that, that was actually The Rise of Skywalker. Episode Five is the second Star Wars movie. So Episode Four was the first movie. Right, Ford's appearance as Han Solo, and it was released as just Star Wars. And today we're talking about The Empire Strikes Back. Episode Five. Third, Third base. base! It's the Ford Fiesta! Welcome to the Ford Fiesta. I'm Paul Gundark Preston. And I'm Adam. Don't everyone thank me at wit. Joining us later in the show to talk about The Empire Strikes Back will be our friend from the movie trivia Schmodown and the host of the Notorious by Chance podcast, Chance Ellison, will be here. In this movie trivia league, Chance is one of those rare competitors who knows a lot about movies in general, but he also dips his toes into the inner geekdom division, which is a lot of nerd-centric categories dealing with Harry Potter, The Lord of the Rings, Marvel, DC, and Star Wars, the galaxy of far, far away. So he'll be coughing up a bunch of good opinions, no doubt. Now, this 80s run of Harrison Ford's might be unparalleled in the history of movies. It starts with The Empire Strikes Back, and here's where we'll be going in the next uh, 10 episodes. It starts with The Empire Strikes Back, and here's where we'll be going in the next 10 episodes of the Ford Fiesta. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Blade Runner, Return of the Jedi, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Witness, The Mosquito Coast, Frantic, Working Girl, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I mean, they even just make Raiders, Blade Runner, and Jedi and Temple of Doom in consecutive years. Seems impossible. That's impossible, even for a computer. <laughs> but it all starts with Empire. For those of you who've been stuffed inside a Tauntaun for the last 42 years and don't know what this movie's about, we'll give you our patented joke-filled recap in just a bit. But first... What's new in the world of Harrison Ford? All right, now Harrison Ford, more TV news, which is interesting because okay. you always think of Harrison Ford as this legendary movie star, but everything is shifting I've never now. done TV, uh, not since back in the day. I think Tom Cruise will be the only one who still hasn't done TV, but now Harrison Ford will star in 1923, a Yellowstone mm. prequel oh. with Helen Mirren. Uh, the sequel to 1883, which came out uh, and was very popular, yeah. continuing the story of the Duttons and how they survived in Montana during World War One, Prohibition and the Depression. This will all feature Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren and should be here in December. That's kind so. of exciting because, of course, the show this is all based on is a Kevin Costner show, which you and I, you know, if we were to list, you know, our top 10 actors, uh, obviously Harrison Ford would be right at the top. But, you know, Costner's going to be way up there. I could do a Costner carnival, you know. I think he has a lot more worse bad movies that would be rougher to you know get through some of those. But then maybe like this, we'd rediscover him and think they're genius after all. Yeah. All right. Now we got Harrison Ford in the same universe. Love it. We got to get those two together. And it's epic. It's epic. It's a Western too, you know? Adam, you spent a week with John Williams. Um, this is just insane. But uh, go ahead and yeah. give us the brief <laughs> recap of your trip to D.C. Uh, I'm so lucky I created two montages for the concert celebrating John Williams' 90th birthday at the Kennedy Center. 
celebrities were in attendance. Uh, if you go look it up, you'll see some photos. We had Desi Ridley there. We had Steven Spielberg there. Uh, and, uh, and I got to have two of my montages played with a live orchestra while John Williams sat in the audience. Now see what usually happens. <laughs> I say usually again, I'm a very lucky guy. Usually I give my montages to John Williams and he rehearses them with the orchestra. Uh, so he's very familiar with them. This is the first time where John got to watch them. Uh, as they unfolded with the orchestra, which was really cool. Uh, and afterwards, I even got some compliments. And I'd been joking the entire time because I got invited to the dinner afterwards to, to celebrate with all the, the donors. It was raising money for the Kennedy Center. Uh, and I was joking the whole time. Of course, I'm going to get to go to the dinner, but they're going to have me at the kids' table, you know, six miles away on an annex. And, you know, if I got a telescope, I could see John Williams. The $20, the $20 donor table. Yeah, I was going to be at the $20 donor table. Well, Paul, uh, I'm here to tell you, if I, uh, if, I, if I turned to my left and I reached uh, kind of far, I could have tapped the man on the shoulder. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah, that was really cool. I met Mike Post, uh, the legendary uh, creator of such theme songs as The A-Team and Magnum P.I. and uh, Rockford Files and Simon and Simon. Um, so, and uh, also in the room, although I didn't get to meet him, was Alan Silvestri. Uh, and also in the room was Thomas Newman. So it was, it was really cool. It was a really cool thing for a big movie music nerd like I am. Yeah, that was, you know, I can die a happy man at this point, although I still got stuff to do. So. And William seemingly mentioned at a dual retirement for he and Harrison Ford, because he said that this new Indiana Jones film will probably be, be William's last film that he composes a score for. But Ford's not done. The previous story was about how he's doing TV, right. so Ford's not done. Don't listen to whatever John Williams is saying there. That was just so funny because John Williams has no reason to carry any sort of party line or keep anything secret. And he obviously had a conversation with Harrison Ford where he's like, oh, you're retiring? You know what? Maybe I'll retire as well. But John Williams, it didn't matter to him. He's like, yeah, I was just talking to Harrison Ford and said he's going to retire <laughs> just in some interview because John Williams say whatever he wants, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, the I, my time with John Williams may be limited, Paul. Well, maybe we'll get another movie out of him because, you know, Harrison Ford's not done. Maybe John Williams isn't done. Maybe they're just talking. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of cool Harrison Ford stuff, I went up to Northern California recently and went to the Coppola Winery. If you haven't, I'm not a big drinker, but if you haven't been to the Coppola Winery, you don't need to be. The food is excellent, and they have a whole area that's just Coppola landmarks from his career, including the Godfather script, all of his Oscars. I think all of them. There might be one missing from the bunch, but there's five of them there. Wow. And. There's a Tucker car, full size, like an old Tucker. And then the desk from the opening, I believe, in America scene from The Godfather is there. Oh, my so God. I just kind of went around and enjoyed all that stuff. And on the way home, I saw we were driving by Petaluma. I said, wait a minute, what? Petaluma? And it was nighttime, so it was the perfect time to visit Petaluma and the American graffiti shooting locations. Oh, boy. So I got to see where Harrison Ford was cruising the streets in oh, that film. Wow. And found the liquor store, found the uh, used car lot, found you know the various intersections where Paul Lamatt was uh, cruising the streets and racing with people. And as we left town, I looked at the map and realized we're leaving on the town where Ford does the final drag race at the end. With, oh, you got to uh, see that too. With Paul Lamatt. What is his character's name? John Samson. Lawrence James Je Lawrence Jesterton. Lawrence Fell Lawrence Jesterton. Lawrence Jesterton. Hold on, I'm gonna blow your mind, Paul. I'm gonna blow your mind in real time here. This character's name, I was just told on a, on another podcast, is a reference to a famous writer. And I did not catch it till now. Go. John Milius John Milner. 
John Milner. I never caught that was a reference to John Milius. Is it really? Interesting. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Low budget movie. They didn't go far between locations. So, yeah, it's an easy jaunt around town to see all those locations. So, I highly recommend it. Uh, you just reminded me, and we'll have to cover this in a future episode and probably the money movie nonsense. We have the entire story of how they found Harrison Ford's hat from uh, American Graffiti at the, at the Star Wars convention. We recorded the whole story and we haven't played that yet. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's this great, crazy story of how someone found the Harrison Ford hat. Uh, something I would have never thought of as a, a great keepsake from that movie. But yeah, they someone some collector had that truck and he sold the truck to somebody else and said, oh, and by the way, there was this hat in it. And it, uh, it's Harrison Bob Ford's Falfa's hat. hat. Oh, Bob cool. Falfa's hat. Well, uh, I wanted to mention uh, James Caan passing away at 82. Uh, he's, you know, starred with Ford in Journey to Shiloh. There were seven boys from Texas Rode off to fight a war One thousand miles to Richmond Was where they headed for and If you don't know what that is, go back and listen to our Journey to Shiloh episode. I always declare the Ford Fiesta is the most fun you can have with a movie you've never heard of. So we bring the goods and describe what that is and having a lot of fun with that film. Two movie guys from Chicago who now live in L.A. Are watching every movie with the guy from Ender's Game. Uh, also, an interesting story today I saw that Ford and Eastwood were both originally considered for John Wick because the original drafts of John Wick, he was an older, retired uh, person who was then brought back into the... They changed it to a younger person and... Keanu Reeves came on board, but that would be interesting. Oh, God, yeah. That's got a lot more Unforgiven to Unforgiven with Harrison Ford. That is something he better not retire before he does. That is a good <laughs> idea. And, of course, if you Google Harrison Ford news, you get Callista Flockhart was seen flying to L.A. in Ford's eight, $18 million jet. Whoa. Claimed to be the largest of his collection. She had three dogs with her. Uh, Daily Mail, thanks for that pointless news, <laughs> as well as the one that Harrison Ford gassed up his classic convertible Jaguar in Santa Monica. Again, courtesy of Daily Mail, yeah. <laughs> so that's important. Thanks, Daily Mail. Paul, uh, you know, <laughs> I love that you do these Daily Mail stories because it just reminds me, someday you and I are going to run into Harrison Ford out in the world. It's going to happen. you got to be in happen. Santa Monica, it seems. He must have come down out of the yeah. hills. He probably got a place up there somewhere in Malibu. And because uh, he's in the bike shop there a lot and he's been spotted with his vehicle. That, that, I mean, it's a dopey newspaper, the Daily Mail. But sure. the shot of that Jaguar, that is a sweet, classic, old time Jaguar convertible. I mean, it is sharp. So, but anyway, uh, yeah, that's where you got to get if you want to see him head to the West. Well, one more quick recurring show segment before we get to the recap. This date in Ford history. History, history. Uh, July 6th, 1979, The Frisco Kid is released. July 10th, 1991, Regarding Henry is released. And wow. also in the week we're recording this, which is the next week, uh, you had um, What Lies Beneath come out. And you know, none of these are like, a lot of these aren't conventional summer movies. Frisco Kid, Regarding Henry, What Lies Beneath. And yet, you know, Ford's putting them out in the summers even back as far as Frisco Kid. Yeah. And, and of course, Air Force One came out in the middle of July, as did uh, K-19, The Widowmaker. So... This is Harrison Ford's breeding ground for films for the majority of the, you know, the big years of his career. But speaking of the biggest, July 14th, 1975, the Star Wars casting has was announced. So that's 
a, a year before or a cut two years before it's released but again it was a surprise that ford was included because i do believe it was lucas's mission to not reuse actors from american graffiti clean the slate and start yeah it was the same thing that almost kept ford out of rares of lost ark i mean you could i think a lot of people could have seen american graffiti more than once and forgotten that harrison ford was in it because harrison ford was still not a huge star from that. So that's weird that George Lucas is kind of sticking to his guns of like that guy. You don't remember is in, is in American graffiti. I'm not using him in my new movie. See, aren't I refreshing? It's like, no, I, we forgot. Come on, dude. Yeah. And surprise. I didn't find any place for Charles Martin Smith in my star Wars universe. Cause he could have been C3PO maybe. I don't know. Although De Palma but, used him. So, you know, yes. And not for nothing, Harrison Ford on July 13th turned 80. 80 still doing it still rocking he he didn't retire at no 65 or no 55 like my grandpa no he's still going for it so as grumpy as he often seems he must love what he does otherwise you stop yeah he would have cut this 15 years ago well the empire strikes back is a remarkable sequel because the first film star wars was wrapped up so neatly with all the heroes all reunited and the death star destroyed but oh yeah there was that little thing where darth vader was sent spinning out into space Where'd he end up and what happens next? Something tells me it's not going to get any better when the Empire strikes back. It is a dark time for the Rebellion. But I thought the Death Star had been destroyed. Although the Death Star had been destroyed, Imperial troops have driven the Rebel forces from their hidden base and pursued them across the galaxy. Classic. And Adam, for five points, what's the first word of the second paragraph of the opening crawl to the Empire Strikes Back? Evading! The dreaded Imperial Starfleet, a group of freedom fighters led by Luke Skywalker, have established a new secret base on the remote ice world of Hoth. The evil Lord Darth Vader, obsessed with finding young Skywalker, has dispatched thousands of remote probes into the far reaches of space. Which is why this is a fantasy film, because in sci-fi, we all know where the probes go. So the rebels have fled to the remote ice planet of Hoth. Isn't it where Darth Vader broods? Uh, no, I believe that's goth. Luke Skywalker, now a commander in the Rebellion, has finally moved off a planet made of sand to a planet made entirely of snow. Are there no planets made of Bahamas? Luke Skywalker is attacked by one of Hoth's less charming indigenous life forms, the Wampa. At eight feet tall, with two legs and one to two arms, the Wampa is known for attacking innocent Tauntauns and hanging Jedi by their feet before gutting them. In classic serial-style drama, Luke hangs helpless with the Wampa rapidly approaching and his lightsaber just out of reach. How's Luke going to get out of this one? Well, just when you thought Jedi's only powers were feeling thousands of voices crying out in terror and convincing stormtroopers to look for droids poorly, the lightsaber leaps into Luke's hands. What? Thought audiences in 1980. Jedi's can move stuff with their minds? Just in time, Luke cuts off the Wampa's arm, convinced that no karma will ever come back to bite him in the ass for cutting that arm off. But, but that's, that's not what this movie's about. about. Harrison Ford reprises his fan favorite role as one of cinema's most beloved heroes, Han Solo. Han Solo. But unlike Star Wars, we don't have to wait a half hour for him to enter the picture. Han Solo has the second line of dialogue in the movie and sets a new personal record for Harrison Ford by entering this movie in four minutes, breaking a record set by Hanover Street by 10 seconds, unless you count the opening credits of Journey to Shiloh. And who would? Willie Bill was born in Pegasus. 18 summers he has seen. But Han Solo's not just in this movie. The Empire Strikes Back is a Han Solo movie. Han's adventures begin with the case of the missing Luke. Luke Skywalker has vanished? He's always doing that. Han swings into action to save Luke like a boss. 
by putting his life on the line like the badass he is with Han Solo AF line number one. Your Tauntaun will freeze before you reach the first marker. Then I'll see you in hell. <laughs> Meanwhile, Luke is dying of exposure in negative 150 with windchill factor. But luckily, Ben Kenobi's ghost is here to save the day. Wait, no, never mind. He's just got a request for the almost dead former student. Now's the time? Really? No, no helpful advice for the last hour in that cave? <laughs> it turns out Luke must go to Dagobah and train with Yoda, an old master of Obi-Wan's. Advice on getting to the swamp planet? Plenty. Advice on surviving exposure in negative 40? None. Thanks, Obi-Wan. Luke needs medical attention, not career advice. So our hero, Han Solo, comes to save the day, wielding a lightsaber himself with the ingenious idea to keep Luke warm inside the dead Tauntaun. Fun fact, this is where the phrase lukewarm comes from. And that's where the phrase this show is dumb comes from. When last we left Han Solo, he was halfway out the door when he decided to help Luke blow up the Death Star. Then the Rebel Alliance bribed him with a medal to stay and help them move. And of course, who wants to say yes, then they tell you they own a pull-out bed and eight snowspeeders. Han Solo exhibits scruffy arrogance alongside Luke, Leia, Chewbacca, and C-3PO in the medical bay, claiming Leia wants him to stay because she's in love with him. Despite that being the truth, the hardened warrior princess will admit to no such thing, and after insulting Han, Leia kisses Luke to make Han jealous. It was an adorable, innocent moment in 1980, and it still is. That moment has never been sullied in any way. But enough fun and games, there's a war on! The probe droid XJ-9 CS-14, whose name I was never asked in Star Wars trivia, so I'll just leave it here, has transmitted the location of the rebel base to the Empire. And then Prank called the Rebels. Uh, yeah, my refrigerator's running. Our hero Han Solo, who ain't afraid of sh flies into action with his faithful sidekick Chewbacca to check it out. Like a boss! Seeing Han and Chewie finally adventuring together as a team, working on the Falcon, doing buddy stuff, and blowing up Imperial sh fulfills so many promises of things we knew about the characters that arrived fully formed in episode four, but never got to see in that movie. Right about now, the rebel boys are in a heap of trouble. <laughs> but you just can't blow up XJ-9 CS-14 and expect the Empire to take it lying down. Quicker than Darth Vader can choke Admiral Ozzel, the Empire responds to XJ-9 CS-14's call for help with the aid of John Williams, who sees Star Wars become one of the most famous movie scores in cinema history and says, hold my beer. But when it comes to war, 1977's Star Wars only really covered the aerial combat angle of war. The Empire Strikes Back picks up where A New Hope left off, introducing land battle with trenches and tanks, or rather all-terrain armored transports, piloted by Donovan from Last Crusade, which the Empire deploys very far away to slowly walk to the base. Why'd they land so far away? Because he didn't take my advice. To get Leia to safety, Han turns to his brother from another shipyard, honorary cast member and scruffy-looking extension of Han Solo himself, the Millennium Falcon. The garbage will do! And this is where the fun begins, because just like Han, the Millennium Falcon is a lot of talk. It takes off, but is unable to go to light speed, leading to a sequence that's pure joy, as the bucket of bolts has to be slap-started and fixed on the fly with the Empire hot on their tails. Han Solo shows why he's the best pilot in the galaxy, evading the Imperial fleet and taking a classic Han Solo gutsy gamble by flying straight into an asteroid field.
Then Industrial Light and Magic, now with a budget, says for our next trick and shows why they won their Oscar, delivering a thrilling sequence that flips the Death Star attack on its head. So instead of 12 ships attacking one ball, now hundreds of balls attack one ship. Meanwhile, Luke Skywalker does what he was told by a ghost that might have been a freezing hallucination and heads to a planet. Hey, go to that planet. You'll be looking for one guy. You like movies? Sure. Well, you know, Paul Preston likes movies. You two should meet. Oh, yeah? Where is he? Earth. But soon after landing... Why, yes! Land? No! On Dagobah, Luke meets a funny, mischievous little green fella. And a funny way of talking, he has. It's a complete change of pace for a movie that's increasingly nothing like Star Wars. Luke doesn't know it yet, but he's met the famous Jedi Master, Yoda, who's just playing a little scamp to throw his future student off. It's easy to overlook in the wake of the worldwide popularity of the character from 1981 to The Mandalorian that this character was always a slam dunk. That George Lucas chose to have us fall in love with a huggable character because that's some light switch that can just be turned on and respectable filmmakers simply choose not to flip it. But make no mistake, Yoda is another punk-ass George Lucas move. It took a lot of guts and Frank Oz to pull it off, and pull it off they did. Aboard the Star Destroyer Executor, Darth Vader's search for the Millennium Falcon is interrupted by a phone call. Who the hell is interrupting my kung fu? But who could be so important to make Darth Vader stop his single-minded pursuit of our heroes? Turns out there's a bigger bad than Darth Vader, the Emperor, calling long distance. Yes, I'll accept the charges. Turns out the Emperor is pretty concerned about this Luke Skywalker, the son of Anakin Skywalker, who Vader killed, as far as we know at this point. Meanwhile, the Millennium Falcon has sought refuge inside a big-ass asteroid to repair the hyperdrive, only to be attacked by Minox, which they get away from, only to realize they're inside the mouth of a cave monster, which they escape from, only to be pursued by the Imperial blockade once again. But finally, on the verge of cliffhanger fatigue, Han Solo shouts his way into another narrow escape. Harrison Ford has some great shouting in this movie. It might be the best shouting he's ever done. Shut him up or shut him down. Come on, Joey. Hurry up, Meanwhile, the Muppets take Dagobah, as Yoda reveals himself to Luke, and Obi-Wan's voice only shows up, exhibiting the afterlife's pretty strict contract restrictions. Yoda decides to train Luke in the Jedi way, which consists of lifting rocks, decapitating dream vaders, and running around with your mentor on your back. Ugh, poor Qui-Gon. In the meantime, Darth Vader must have saved up like 30 proofs of purchase, because he got himself a bunch of bounty hunters to find Han Solo. And Star Wars proves it's not done minting famous characters, as Boba Fett makes his first appearance. In classic Star Wars form, he has two minutes of screen time, a Lobot's worth, as we say in the biz. But that's all it took. Also, I'm not sure how people can say there's too much Star Wars, when Zuckus doesn't even have a Disney Plus show yet. We learn a lot more about the Force and what it's capable of, like lifting X-Wings out of the swamps. Judge not Yoda by his size. We also learn that Jedis can see the past and the future. We'll call that power the Jedi Spoiler Alert, because Luke can see the ending of this movie. Bespin, Lando, the ending to Better Call Saul. As impatient Luke decides not to complete his training and leave Dagobah, did Yoda call that or what? Obi-Wan swings in with uh, all the timing of an Adobe update. Uh, any advice on the AT-ATs, Obi-Wan? No? No? Oh, but maybe after we get my X-Wing out of the swamp, you can swing in and give me your thoughts on Bespin. Okay. Meanwhile, Han Solo cleverly hides on the back of a Star Destroyer like a kick-me sign and escapes by blending in with garbage that the Empire dumps before they jump to hyperspace. So if he didn't know how evil the Empire is from their invasions, killing, and wanton destruction, they litter! 
Also, did you see the size of the, the litter that they dumped? I mean, what is this? Is that the boxes that TIE fighters come in? <laughs> and off we go to a whole new biome made of cloud where the sun is always setting. But not only does the sky look like a great place for a nap, the smooth voice of the administrator of the facility is none other than that of Billy D. Williams as Lando Calrissian, who not only gives us another classic Star Wars character, but adds even more backstory to the hero of this podcast, Han Solo. Things are going so great, it looks like our heroes have made it to safety. Wait, wait, I spoke too soon. Somebody blows up C-3PO, and then dinner is rudely interrupted by Darth Vader. Now Han shoots first, second, and third, but it's no match for the dark side. We never get to see how dinner went, but I'm assuming politics made this worse than Thanksgiving in the Midwest after the election of 2016. After torturing Han Solo... Han is taken to a carbon freezing chamber to test whether or not it will kill Luke. Ugh, littering and testing on animals? They are monsters. Realizing that this may be their last moment together, Han and Leia finally make good on two movies worth of sexual tension and kiss. And then, a most Han Solo moment. A genuinely hilarious line that solidifies their relationship and Han Solo as a character. I love you. I know. It still works like gangbusters. But Lando's had enough of the Empire and shows them who's boss. Lobot! Who comes and saves the day and rescues Leia, Chewbacca, and what's left of C-3PO. Finally, Luke faces Vader, the task he was warned he was rushing into. He's not ready for the task in lightsaber skills or force ability, but there's also one tiny detail that Yoda and Obi-Wan left out when warning Luke not to face him. I am your father. No, no famous Obi-Wan surprise appearance like on Hoth to maybe say, Whoa, hey, wait, before you go in there, nothing? <laughs> I'll just be here missing my hand and admire your restraint. <laughs> Luke barely escapes with his life thanks to Lando, but the lame Falcon is still unable to go to light speed, pursued by the Empire whose ambition to catch them has doubled. But it turns out all the Falcon needed all this time was a little R2-D2 magic, as the little droid repairs the hyperdrive, and they jump to hyperspace, leaving a double-taking Vader so upset that he can't even bring himself to strangle a guy. Will Han survive? Is Darth Vader Luke's father? Has the rebellion been crushed? Who's the Emperor? Does Will Rowe Hood get that ice cream maker to safety? Will Lobot return? What's Jabba the Hutt look like? Will Boba Fett have a bigger part in the next movie? What's a Bib Fortuna? All these questions and more will be answered in three years. Three years? That's right. Disney Plus fans complaining about waiting a week. Three years. There you go. That's the first trick. Adam, brilliant on the script. This... Episode very oh, and that is The Empire Strikes Back, everybody. No doubt exactly as you remembered it. Not just often considered the best film in the Star Wars franchise, but often considered one of the best films ever made. So, you don't have to twist arms to get someone to talk about this movie. No surprise then that we have a guest joining us. He's known as the Cobra in the movie trivia Schmodown, where he and I and Adam battle it out in online movie trivia. It's a league. Tens of thousands of people watch us. I, uh, you know, it is entertaining as hell, I gotta admit. So we're having fun on there, and we're happy to get to know this guy who is also yeah. the host of the Notorious by Chance podcast, Chance Ellison, everybody. Hey. applause. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we have, you don't participate in the Star Wars League. Have you ever done a Star Wars match? I have not. 
No. I have not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Only insane Ch- people compete in that league. <laughs> that is Ch- true. Yeah. Chance competes in the what's called the Inner Geekdom League, which is everything geeky except Star Wars. Because there's so much Star Wars, they made a whole separate league of <laughs> matches just about that. And now they're starting to go all over hell with those questions, man. Like stuff that is not mentioned in the movies that you just have to know. Crazy. Crazy. The life layer from Cloud City was one that John Hoey got missed wrong. It's like, what is the layer of breathability on Cloud City? <laughs> he's like, what? <laughs> yeah, here's a guy that knows Star Wars pretty well. And he's like, what are you it's, it's Cloud City. It's got a life layer of 0.26. <laughs> you hear that, people at home? You hear it's that? Adam Chance for two points. How many years after Star Wars does The Empire Strikes Back take place? Oh yeah, that's. I think is is it isn't like real time, isn't it? Also three. I would guess three. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think it's the same same as the movies. It is same in the movies. So I'll start off with some facts about the Empire Strikes Back. It uh, and we're recording here on May twenty fifth, which is fun to know because yeah. that's now what forty five years. 45 years since the original Star Wars. Yeah, the math is unkind because I saw that in the theater. I also saw this in the theater. You were there to see like, both? You were, you were there to see the original Star Wars in theaters? Oh, Jedi. yeah. Jedi, and yes, I did. 1980, yeah. May 21st. I am just, uh, I am just shocked. I did not know how old you were. But, uh, so May 17th, they held the premiere of the film at the Kennedy Center. And then May 21st, it goes out to audiences. And theaters were limited to 126 for two reasons. Wow. First, they uh, 126. Can you imagine the scramble? Like if Top Gun Maverick, which is opening yeah. this weekend, 126 theaters. 126 would theaters. Be, yeah, it would be a, <laughs> it'd be a lot of trampling. Can't catch me, catch me having a full blown meltdown if it didn't come my come my area. <laughs> the theaters were limited to 126, so it would be hard to get a ticket, but also 70 millimeter. Oh, there's okay. That. There's that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Eventually, June 20th, it expands to the rest of the country. And it does so with a budget of $30.5 million and grosses $292 million domestic. And that's 209 actually at the time, $209 million, and then the other $80 million or so in re-releases over time. So like, out of curiosity, like, what, what is that in terms of inflation like today? Like, what, what would the budget be today? Ooh. Just keep thinking about how much a movie ticket was back then. It was under $3 to see. <laughs> under 3 to see right. The Empire Strikes Back. And so I mean, I mean made... for, for the cost of like, a, like an L.A. ticket cost right now, you could see Empire. You could have seen Empire Strikes Back back in the day in like, what, 10 times? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so people did, probably, because it was the only way you were going to see it for years. You know, that's the thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, didn't come out on VHS. So 30 million in 1980 is 105 million today. Okay, which is still not brutal not for much. a sci-fi blockbuster. No, I guess I consider like what a lot of blockbusters are made for today, but that's still like a decent budget, but right. like not what you would expect for like a, like a Star Wars movie now. Yeah, exactly. Well, and this is an independently made movie right this is made with action figure money so i mean that's how radical like people act like there's something so disnified about star wars all along but george lucas this radical filmmaker who i extol the the virtues of i mean this is the director of thx 1138 and american graffiti let us not forget that held up a big middle finger that moved all his filmmaking to san francisco along with francis ford coppola after their hits so this radical dude strikes on star wars and says okay the one problem with this whole thing is I had to listen to anything from 20th Century Fox. That's it. I'm doing this next one all on my own. Toy mo- all with toy money. I'm making this movie all on my own. Can you believe that? I mean, I'm sure you talked about when you did when you did the first one, but like just the deal he made for like, the toys. That, that's a deal that no studio would give a filmmaker today. 
Like right. it would never happen. Yeah, no, he invented an industry that they will never pass up that money again. People, some people are waking up in cold sweats who worked in 20th Century Fox in 1977, who who were the ones that were like, I could have, I could have gotten the action figure deal. It wouldn't have been that hard to get. Those were the droids I was looking for. <laughs> To confirm our Lucas as rock star in the 70s uh, motif, which has been running through the Ford Fiesta since American Graffiti. (laughs) Um, Fox had the right of first negotiation for the sequel, but they gave Lucas controlling interest in the series and series merchandising and the sequels. Because they thought Star Wars wouldn't amount to anything, as we all know. So so Lucas comes in, as you say, um, and it's a. Quickly greenlit with a 100-page contract at September 21st, 1977. So only four months after Star Wars. I went, ah, boo, please come back and make it for us. You know, we're sorry what we said about the last one. We, we, but... we are sorry for our transgressions. Please. <laughs> and this contract dictated that uh, Fox would distribute Empire, but have no creative input. None. Lucas. <laughs> but it was still a risky contract monetarily for Lucas. And the whole time this was going on, he's also developing Raiders of the Lost Ark. So. And as it as it progressively went over budget, I think he had to give away more of the farm to 20th Century Fox and give certain guarantees of profit participation and stuff, too. It, it, that $8 million is the contract you just talked about or we just talked about. But as it crept up to 30, it was like, you know, to protect 20th Century Fox interest in it. They uh, gave more to the production or, or, or allowed for more profit participation but or something. Definitely, the risk was still there on Lucas. He oh, wasn't God. like granting anybody anything. And it, most of it went through his company. So, like, the company was good. Lucasfilm, as we know it today, this huge thing that Disney purchased, cranking out all this content, may not have been if this tanked. And again, he put it all on the line, man. Rockstar. Well, well like, yeah, I mean, because you look at something, I kind of equate this like, you know, Orson Welles. Citizen Kane, yeah. where like you know he made like one movie and it was excellent, everyone loved it, but then like look back, okay, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do next? Mm-hmm. And like like you said, Paul, like this is something that George Lucas he had creative control over, like even more so than the first one. So like if this fails, it's all it's really all on him. This <laughs> yeah. done, yeah. done, yeah. And uh, they didn't need much to sell it. The tagline was simply. The adventure continues. All your favorites, step back. They're doing yeah. stuff again. Yeah, and, and the title was The Empire Strikes Back because anything with a two in it, even back then, was considered inferior. Sequels were not a big deal back then as, as franchises are clear, clearly now. So they avoided Star Wars Part 2 or Chapter 2. He gave up some money in his salary to get the action figure rights and the sequel rights. And the studio said, who, need, who wants either of those things? Yeah, sure, we'll take the extra ten grand you're cutting off your salary. Uh, for a bigger budget. Take, take it, take it, Katie. Fucking idiot. Yeah. So let's get back to the first time you saw it. Uh, Chance, you're already shocked that I saw it in the theater. I did. I was visiting my sister who was going to Purdue University. So I think I saw this in the middle of Indiana, but just I wasn't going to wait. So we went out to see it. I thought they killed Han Solo. <laughs> I was 10. You know, I didn't know. Any, I, I didn't quite get it. Didn't quite register with me until future viewings. I mean, what did I know? So, uh, yeah, I remember crying in a hotel room. My parents having to say, no, no, he's not dead. They froze him to take him back to he's got these debts he owes people and blah, blah, blah. OK, OK. Cause I, I mean, because I loved Han Solo. Loved so I, Han Solo. I couldn't have that. And, oh and of course, his, we'll talk in a sec about how great Ford is in this film. Absolutely. That just made me love him even more. So by the time he hits that chamber and Oof. gets frozen. I was just like, wait, what? You know. And let me just say, if this is the first Star Wars movie you see, it works just the same. Han Solo is easily the best character in this movie. Obviously, Uh, he he is he's in most of the movie. 
And he is such a great character that I, and that, and boy, Paul Hirsch, the editing of this movie, the way that it, between Paul Hirsch and John Williams, that the way the, when he gets carbon froze, like the emotions that this movie's already putting you through, the betrayal, the land of Calrissi, and the fact that they are uh, on the run for so long and they just want to catch a break and they can't catch a break. And Han Solo is caught up to by his past debts and by the Empire, you know, and the Empire wins like it. But that whole with the final kiss and I love you, I know, like the editing and the storytelling of this too is like, I think if this was the first movie you watched, you would cry just as much at Han Solo getting frozen and think he's also, he's dead. If this was your first movie. <laughs> so chance you're much younger. So yeah, go ahead and tell when did you, when did you see it? And, and how did you see it? I'm going to make y'all feel a little, little, little old. Cause I do, <laughs> I, I, do, I do tend to do that. Just existing in space. I do. It happens. So my first, my first uh, intro to star Wars that I can remember. I know I present. <laughs> I was a young spry boy. I was 10 years old, so it was five days ago. I was present for being a fan of Menace, but I was like two years old at the time, so I don't remember. Right. Uh, so my first one I remember seeing was Attack of the Clones. Like, I was like, oh, okay. my God, this is this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And then my uncle, who was like the like my big film influence, like he's the one that really got me into movies. He was like, oh, yeah, you're like, okay, let me show you something that's really going to blow your mind. It was right before, before Revenge of the Sith came, Revenge of the Sith came out, so – they did that whole nice new DVD restoration of the originals. Right. And so like, here, we're, we're, we're going to watch all three of the originals. Ooh. And I'm like, huh, okay, that'd be better than Attack of the Clones. Then I watched it, I'm like, holy sh! Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, this is this is way better. And then when I, got to, I got to Empire Strikes Back, and there's some, that's one just something you feel, because you know, the first one was like a fun you know, space kind of sent out to like be Buck Rogers type sci-fi movies. This is this is the one where like the paradigm really shifts. You know, they get deeper themes, they get deeper motifs, and they get this like really comparatively like darker stuff. And like I I knew like the first time I watched Empire Strikes Back, I'm like, yeah, this is my favorite Star Wars movie. And it's gonna be hard to top mm-hmm. because yeah, like it just you feel you feel greater stakes, you have greater character moments, and a lot of which like what said do involve Han Solo, like that whole. I love you. I know everything with him and Princess Leia. We're just like, I, I remember like seeing Han Solo. Like this is, this is the guy I would want to grow up to be if I was in the Star Wars universe. Right. And like to and to the point, like the whole freezing carbonite. It does feel like it does feel like they were kind of bearing for like maybe they are gonna kill Han Solo because they brought in Lando who basically black Han Solo. Right. And Billy well, Billy D who I love the people. <laughs> I love him as Lando. But it's like, oh crap! Are they, are they gonna are they gonna kill Han Solo and replace him with this dude? I don't know how I feel about it. This is Han Solo's coming out party. You, you don't realize how minor a character he was in Star Wars till you see this, and you're like, wow, this is Han Solo. You know, John Hoey tries to do the make Solo two happen. This is Solo two. Like this is a Solo movie. You know. Well, and also like Han Solo is the character who, I mean, aside from Luke, I think he undergoes the most some of the biggest character changes between the films. Because, you know, you have this guy where, like, you don't know if you can trust him. You feel like he's in it for the money. But then, he, you know, he, ha- he has right. that change of heart at the end of the first film. Then this one where he's at the forefront where he's, like, he's been in this. He's been in it for a while. So he was like, oh, crap. You know, he, he's tired, but, he, you know, he's still got all. He's he, he got that life calling out to him. And then, you know, Jedi, which you'll get to him, which, you know, becomes, the, becomes, like, the real hero of the story. Yep, again, besides Luke, he does stuff, too. It's, 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 the, it's the fourth, yes, but come on. Uh, but <laughs> I feel like this is the one where... 
you know, this is where like, you get into the meats of who Han Solo really is as a person. It's interesting you say that, the, the differentiation between Luke and Han, because it, Han is the hero, because he is with the rebels the whole time. Yeah. You know, Luke has his arc, in, which I think is one of the best arcs in cinema, you know, from sure. Tachi Station to, I'm a Jedi like my father. Right. Like, that arc is palpable, right, from what he was to what he is in three movies' time. But it's all kind of in a different pe- place you know, it's always with training in Dagobah, visiting Dagobah, fighting Vader, visiting the Emperor, fighting the Emperor, fighting Vader. It, but the rebels and all that stuff were the real, uh, like, defeat of the of the Empire kind of is, is with Han. He's the yeah. hero. So I guess we won't be doing the Hamel, uh, Hamel hoedown or whatever anytime soon. We're sticking with the Ford Fiesta. <laughs> <laughs> we're not, we're not going to get uh, the uh, Corvette Summer. No, we're not going to have a, no Corvette Summer episode. <laughs> See, it's funny you should mention that because I did bring this up yesterday with Adam, and we talked about this perhaps on the show, is that we still don't know if Harrison Ford is a leading man at this point in the Ford Fiesta. He had all these bit parts until American Graffiti, which is a small part, but suddenly, oh, who's this guy? And then... He's in the conversation in the background. Star Wars, he comes to the forefront, but he's still not the lead. And then he gets a chance to be a lead, but does Hanover Street take off? Does the Frisco Kid take off? Not really. He's sharing the screen still with Wilder. And then Empire Strikes Back, he kind of needed after those small parts and those hits and misses like heroes. Right. Empire is a huge hit. Still not the lead. Can he be a leading guy? I think the hints are here. And it's interesting that you uh, mentioned about the stakes, too, because... My favorite movie of all time, we were just on Amaru Moses' podcast talking about the best action-adventure characters of all time. For me, it's Indiana Jones, and it's because Raiders of the Lost Ark delivered stakes that you have fun within. And I think that's here, too. I mean, how much fun is it watching Vader dispatch of his admirals? How much fun is it watching them having to kickstart the Millennium Falcon like a hundred times? All the dialogue in the uh, rehab room where Luke just got out of the tank and they're laughing up fuzzball and everything. Like, there's so much fun to be had, but you never doubt the stakes. So all that is to say, uh, Harrison Ford's awesome, right? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, mean, you got that sense where it's like, he has a, the attitude that, you know, a lot of pe- people love antiheroes. And he has that kind of attitude in the first one where just like, oh, who's this? Like, he, he's, he's this cool guy sitting in a space bar. I, 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 I could jive with this guy for a little bit. Right. You know, most important quality that any movie star, I think you probably agree, you have to have this like magnetic personality. And here, that's exactly what he gets to demonstrate a lot more of because he gets to interact with a lot more characters than, you know, just a big walking carpet and <laughs> this, this farm boy. <laughs> Like the scene, the scene of the Princess Leia, just like, okay, yeah, yeah, he, he, you, 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 fi- you fix that, you fix that hyperdrive, Han Solo, and whatever you say. Well, you, you know, lost in your eyes and your chin scar. I mean, Harrison Ford obviously has a natural charm, and we're charmed by him in Star Wars. He is definitely playing more of a type, a space warrior kind of guy. You know, I've been from one side of this galaxy to the other. You know, he's almost got a little more. They're they're playing on certain tropes where he is, you know, more of a John Wayne type thing or whatever. More more of a man with no name type guy. Right. But in this one, you know, like all the I all the things set up in Star Wars. Oh, he's a man on the run. Oh, he's you know always out for. Uh, this or that or living this life or whatever we see him on the run constantly in this it's like it puts him to all the test of all of the potential that han solo had in star wars that it just movie that frankly didn't have time to deal with han solo you know he was he was kind of there to get him to alderaan and you know to be the cowboy and then come and save the day at the end but he served his purpose in that but in this one man they get him on the run you have to you, the, the millennium falcon like 
I always thought it was weird when Luke was like, what a piece of junk, because I thought that sh- ship was so cool. But in this one... Uh, it, 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 it's an actual piece of junk. Yeah. yeah, it's a piece of junk, and it constantly fails them. It really does make him more of the scruffy nerf herder. You know, like, he's... Is he a bumpkin? You know, she basically calls him a bumpkin there, and it's like, are you driving the, uh, in, you know, 1956 Ford pickup truck that's just rusted all the way through that you're still you know he's driving the volkswagen Chiraco. right hey and a lot of cool high school adventures in that volkswagen truck put eight people in that thing and drive to whatever but you know like you're not actually going into an asteroid field to be crazy and these radical moves he does where it's just like all right well then let's try this all right then let's try this like ah don't worry about it we got the hyperspeed we don't have that so now i'm headed into the asteroid field to be crazy to follow us now i'm gonna go into an asteroid they'll never find us there now i'm gonna go on to the back of the star destroyer and and trick him again and it's just like he we hear he's the best of the best pilot in star wars but man you see it here it's just like uh, han and millennium falcon <laughs> that's quite a what a pair huh no yeah we, we talked about that like it maybe realize like yeah like we, we, we don't get seen like be like the ace pilots in the first one yeah this will this is where we do get to do that because yeah, you take away. It's kind of like you know we think of like Thor in the first Thor, where like okay, you take away the god, now you get to know the man. Well, take away the hyperdrive, now you get to, now you have to like really show how good a pilot you are. And just how vast this this uh, universe is too. Of like, there's an asteroid field, and now we're at Cloud City, and it's just like what a radical sequel. Also, that it just delivers on on so many levels, inventing whole new worlds. You know, we get thrown from thing to thing to thing and, and then back into the Empire's arms and Cloud City. It's just a it's a really well-written script, really well-edited movie. Well, let's talk about the script. <clears throat> First of all, do you guys know anything about Splinter of the Mind's Eye? Yeah, I know a lot concern- about of, uh, Splinter of Ninja Turtles, but not Splinter of the Mind's okay, Eye. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is apparently a low-budget sequel written when after Star Wars and because they weren't sure Star Wars was going to be anything, so they kept it low-budget and then they kind of threw it out and made Empire. But it became a, a book. Do I have all, that right, Adam? Yeah, Alan Dean Foster, famous uh, famous writer and famous writer of movie adaptations, I believe. Uh, the cool thing was, like Splinter of the Mind's Eye, there was this piece of merchandise with which you could live more Star Wars adventures. There was the Marvel Comics also. So th- that was what was cool. when you saw, I wasn't a, a huge reader. Like I read the Star Wars adaptation, which was just based on Lucas's original script, a novel by George Lucas, I believe it said. But uh, this one always teased me, and I would read parts of it, but I never read the whole thing. But it was just cool that there was another Star Wars story. Darth Vader's on the cover, Princess Leia's on the cover, you know. It came out right after. Yeah, well, they eventually scrapped that and went with uh, something else because, again, they thought Star Wars was going to tank, and in the words of Ron Howard, it didn't. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so Lucas hires Lee Brackett, <clears throat> knowing at the time that she had cancer. So, again, you're going to see a lot more of rock star stuff from Lucas throughout this making of sec- section of this show. Uh, first of all, Lee Brackett is pedigree. She wrote Rio Bravo. She wrote The Long Goodbye. Big Sleep. Um, and The Big Sleep. She passed away in 1978 and Lucas finished the draft, then brought in Lawrence Kasdan to enhance everything. So you see the three names in, the, in Brackett and Kasdan with the screenplay and Lucas with the story. Um, but uh, And this all happened because Kasdan had already delivered a Raider script. So if you think like the movies came out 80 and 81, they actually were written differently. He wrote Raiders, and they started developing that. Then he came in. You did a great job. Help us with Empire as well. So pretty much all of Brackett's contribution was gone by the time they got to the final script. But Lucas supported her credit 
as co-writer, provided for her family beyond the contracted pay. And, you know, because he's a rock star. Right. And this was probably a wise move. And she's a move. legend. And she's a legend. And then Lucas focused on ILM to make sure they could make the movie that he hired another guy to make while he executive produced, that being Empire. So here's some stuff brackets, draft included. Uh, Lando was a clone. Who exactly? Another Lando, an Uber Lando. <laughs> He's a clone of a, a bigger, better Lando, the Alpha no one, Lando. No wonder there's only one black guy in the galaxy. The same guy everywhere we go. <laughs> it's like Isaac on the love boat. Somehow he's behind every bar. But they're all Lando. I mean, can you complain? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's a lot of Landos. You know? so uh, there's a whole bar full of Landos. This is all in the draft, I'm theorizing. So it's just a yeah. bar full of Landos. And every one of them starts, you know, one woman walks into a bar full of Landos. And yeah. it, it's like a, it's an echo of, hello, whatever. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, what have we here? Hello, what have we here? In brackets, draft Obi-Wan instructed Luke to leave Dagobah. And there was a character in Han's stepfather that he was looking for in some sort of sub uh, sub story in the in the thing. Uh, then Lucas's draft included Luke's sister, which was not Leia at the time. And Vader had a castle. I mean, uh, Vader did get a castle eventually. They developed that castle that you see in uh, uh, Rogue One. That is from Ralph McQuarrie's concept design for the castle from this movie. Yeah. Interesting. And when you read Starlog at the time, obviously there was no internet. So we would get these rumors and drips and drabs from ILM that you would read in Starlog magazine. And talking about Obi-Wan and Darth Vader's fight in the la on the lava planet, I already knew that in 1978, 79 from Starlog magazine. So when you see that in Revenge of the Sith, that is... Oh, almost a lifetime's worth of waiting for that. But the same thing with the, the castle on the lava planet in uh, Rogue One. So. I, I just imagine Wit in, two, in 2000, oh. 2004, just like, you know what? I've waited my entire goddamn life for lava planets. I want my lava Give planet. me my lava fight. I want my lava fight. I cut the you know, Wit this year going, oh my God, there's a Moon Knight show. Like there's everything Adam wants eventually comes around. They're, that's how they're doing it these days. It's amazing. Every I get everything I want. You, you, <laughs> I really you should, go back, you should go back and die on a younger self. Just patience, patience, young boy. Right. right so directing right. Star Wars was an incredibly stressful. So Lucas hands off duty to Irvin uh, Kirshner. Here are some people who were also in the mix: John Badham, which you think would probably be a similar type of movie, I imagine. Right. Well, I mean, but he's looking for journeymen that will not put too much of their thumbprint on any on this movie because it's George Lucas's thumbprint. He's standing behind every director going, eh, maybe move the camera to the left a little bit. You know, I mean, Richard Marquand did not just go freely into... Just, 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 just have just him say no. It's not be okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I like what well, you're doing here, Kirsch. Here's another suggestion they passed over who would have done just what you're talking about. Alan Parker. Can you imagine Alan Parker's The Empire Strikes Back? Wow, the director of Pink Floyd, The Wall. Yeah, yeah. Burning Zone, Alan Parker. But, you know, uh, Blue Thunder and Saturday Night Fever's uh, uh, John Badham. The line was drawn, we wanted the dance sequence. The Ugnuts, <laughs> yeah, the Ugnuts do a big number. The, the Ugnuts discotheque. We like you, John, but yeah, we, we got to scrap this. <laughs> so even Lucas uh, has indie film issues in Norway, poor weather, the worst snow snowstorm Norway saw in half a century, uh, hit them, camera lenses froze over, the acetate film got too brittle, paint froze in the cans, frostbite slipping on the ice, an avalanche. Then they go to Elstree, where Lucas, rock star, built the Star Wars stage to get done what he needed to get done. And there was a fire. 
Carrie Fisher got influenza and bronchitis, and not to mention she was on hallucinogens and painkillers and trying to deliver a speech to the rebels while as such. Uh, The uh, steam on Cloud City sets would raise it 90 degrees in the room, and Peter Mayhew would go bonkers in his Chewbacca outfit. So, I can see you're basically wearing like a big fur, a big fur, like bear suit. I'd imagine me miserable. Yeah, like I, 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 I live, I, I live in Arizona. I'm miserable walking down the street in like a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, yeah. Put on a whole fur coat and then turn on all those lights. Our whole and, fur and, and turn on all the heaters. But how about that production design? You know, I know they do so much with green screens. We're always bitching about you know how they're not going. I am at least how they're not going to Tunisia like they used to in Raiders and getting dysentery and making their movie and having to be brilliant. They're <laughs> easy for you green to screens. Although, I demand course, the entire cast get dysentery. <laughs> exactly. It proves you've done something. Uh, Live so. a little, goddammit. <laughs> the reason we like that is because they make lemonade out of out of the lemons. And so, for example, there I remember reading in the making of this that the snowstorm was so bad they couldn't even leave the hotel. So the, I think the shot of Luke after he leaves the Wampa Cave and he falls down that snow hill that's just them shooting out the back of the hotel, and they just told Mark Hamill to go run up the hill and come down. That was just one way of getting anything that day. <laughs> Which I also think, like a test, like a great filmmaker, is that like when you have like exterior interference and you can work around it. Like I talk about contemporary Lucas Spielberg, uh, twenty years later, yeah. breaking Jurassic Park when they had uh, when they had that uh, hurricane where right. it's like, ah crap, we can't film today. You know what? Let's just film the hurricane scenes right now. We've got a hurricane movie, so finish. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's nice when the you know, filmmakers can like adapt to elements like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Coppola always called it an apocalypse. Now he's like, "Hey, free special effects! I didn't have to bring a whole bunch of rain cannons. It's raining. Let's shoot." <laughs> yeah, the wildest story in that respect was that R two D two getting shot out of the lake in Dagobah, getting spat out by a monster. Apparently filmed in Lucas's pool. Uh, but th- and that reminds me of the Ben Gardner's head from Jaws. That was shot in uh, the. The editor of oh, Verna Fields, Verna Fields, it was shot in her pool. And I later read a biography where it listed her address. And I went on Google Maps and found the pool where they shot Ben Gardner's head. And it was actually for sale about five, six years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, what a legendary selling, thing, right? Yeah. They were just selling uh, Nancy's place from um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Oh, I've <laughs> somebody been past bought that. that. Uh, after a while, the Lucasfilm sent out a memo to the staff saying, uh, "Please misstate the film's direct costs as 17 million when they were in fact 25 to 28." <sighs> and eventually, Fox threatened to buy out the bond and take over filming until Lucas uh, got a loan from the Bank of Boston, a risky one, because um, it went through his company again, and so everything was on the line once again for the guy who made the biggest movie of all time. He still couldn't just float through his next production. Fox didn't see a rough cut until March. Movie came out in May, and they actually finished it on April 16th, and they had three more weeks to look at one last thing and go, you know, in the end, we can't tell the spatial relation between Chewie and Lando and, and then where Luke and Leia are. So they need they did some extra shots of the Falcon flying away and all the rebel ships that are kind of clustered together at the end of the film. They did all that in three weeks. So it's wow. like the, the ending, the ending was done and was that the ending was done in three weeks. A lot of the extra shots added to the, the finale because they'd looked at something about it. Just didn't read that. You're like, wait, where are Lando and Chewie? And what's, what are they doing there? Well, that makes, that makes a lot of yeah. sense because like, it's been like a long running joke. Like Lando's wearing Han's clothes. Right. It's just like, uh, <laughs> like, 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 like why, why is that? Like, did, did, <laughs> 
Did he run out? Did he now time to pack? Okay, now, now we get it. It's just what you wear when you pilot the Falcon. Yeah. We lost Lando <laughs> wardrobe, but what do we do? I don't know. Just give him. He's got the same measurement as Harrison, right? Put put him in his clothes. No one's gonna know. It's fine. Yeah, it's the official. Ca- it's like flying an airplane. You know, there's a certain uniform. You know, you fly the Falcon, you got to put on the vest. It turns out. Got to put on the vest. <laughs> you have to. It's contractually obligated, Billy B. And that's 600 effects shots in total compared to Star Wars 360. Damn. Man. And they really upped the ante. Like, they really did not deliver a similar experience. First of all, this one opens up with its own trench battle. This one, now we have trenches. We have basically tanks. You know, we have heavy artillery and all a whole different type of war. And that's how this movie opens, basically. Yeah, and also, like, the, the, the increased scope of it. Because, like you said, yeah. like, you got all these different planets, all these different environments. We had these battles on the Battle of the Hoth. It's, like, an excellent, excellent action sequence. And I like that we also do get to see different kinds of different kinds of like ships and artillery. I like the, yeah. the snow spear is really cool. To, like watch do stuff. The ATAT is iconic at this point. Oh man! And just and, and snowtroopers. Like I, I when I saw this for the first time. First of all, if you want to be charmed at how young I was when I saw this movie, Chance, I didn't know sequels existed. I did not know they made <laughs> they would make another movie of movies and star Wars was my favorite thing. It was like the greatest thing that ever happened. I had all the toys. I had all the books I had. Uh, we were even talking about this with Mike Nichols last night. We watched it in Paul's uh, backyard. I had a little play school viewer, a little crank viewer that would play one minute of the star Wars, uh, death star battle. And that was the only way to re-experience star Wars that and the 33 and a third album, uh, narrated by, uh, uh Roscoe Lee Brown. So I, when I found out there were sequels, much less the idea that like stormtroopers, that they would have new ones of those, they would have snow troopers. They would have the, I mean, I'll take an absolute ripoff of the last movie. Just do it again with different words. Yeah. But the fact that they expanded everything was just amazing. New TIE fighters, TIE bombers. You know. I, we, we also got the new uh, Star, Star Destroyers, like that that oh, giant behemoth. This is right. The, the executor. Not, not the executor, yeah. The executor, yeah. And the, and how they redo that, you know, how the opening of Star Wars has the famous shot of the, tie, uh, the Star Destroyer going overhead. And they imitate that, but merely with the, you know, top bridge, basically, of the, like the, the, the bridge of the executor is so big that it is what's going over camera. They imitate that shot, but the only to only to be a tiny part of the Star Destroyer this time. I love that. It's amazing. Yeah. The, the conning tower or whatever. Yeah, I think the one thing George Lucas nailed in the in the first one, two, two and a half is pretty cool. Like, I'll, I'll give him some credit for this. Uh, just like he is incredible at world building. Right. And just like expanding it, and despite the fact that it's, it, it it is like it is kind of funny that like okay we got we got we got this like snowy tundra. I don't know the whole planet looks like this, but the fact that like we're seeing these like the first one we what we get we got a desert, and we got like this like space space weird airport thing, but now we're getting like different about we got like a swamp, we got yeah. a snowy planet. Didn't see we that got coming. A place where it's, we got a place where it's like a, like a cl- like an entire city. But it's in the clouds. I love it. Yeah. I had no idea. I thought, sure, give me more desert planets. I don't care. Like I just I just want more Star Wars. The entire galaxy is a desert. Sure, whatever. But it delivered this completely new experience. Uh, like the in fact the storytelling in this is pretty brave. Like the like the, the storytelling of the of Star Wars A New Hope is flawless in its act one, act two, act three, like really just grinded out just the perfect storytelling. This one is not afraid to be a, a much simpler story. 
They kind of just go from A to B in some ways, you know, and then loop to C, which is B for the, for the, the other story, you know. We also have the choice of, like, splitting your main characters. You know, like, a thing a lot of people like with the first one was you had, like, this core group of characters that you came to love. What are we doing after the first act? Split them up. Luke's going off. Luke and Archie are going off to do their thing. And then everyone else is going off to do their thing. And we're seeing how these characters, you know, how they are in their own separate journey and how they're each getting called to their own different destinies. Yeah. And what's the response from the critics, Adam? Because you love this. Thumbs down. Wall Street Journal says it's absurd to add dramatic weight to lighthearted Star Wars. <laughs> David Denby says it was more spectacular than Star Wars, but lacked its campy style. Good, says Paul Preston, <laughs> the movieguys.net. <laughs> Vincent you can't take you can't take sci-fi seriously. How dare you? Yeah. And then the next review. Why don't they take these things seriously? You know, it's the same reviewer, I'm sure. And Janet Maslin said Lando was loaded with jive. Way to go, Janet. Nice work. I, I mean, it's, it's almost like she never saw. Oh, I mean, I, I guess Billy Dale was blown all the time, but it's just like, come on, look at this dude. What do you think he's going to do here? And then, of course, Roger Ebert described Empire as the best and heart of the trilogy. Because ah! we love, we love... Uh, Roger. He, 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 he knows what's up. He, he knew what was up. Right. That's, That's why there were only two reviewers when I was growing up, Siskel and Ebert. Everybody <laughs> else was just like, what? Boredom. Boredom of Benji running. Oh, my God. What a great quote. Bored, I was bored, bored of Benji running. Oh, Boredom. Was... Boredom of Benji running. There you hear, there you hear Siskel's... <laughs> That just recap Siskel's review of Benji the Hunted. Just, just go, just go look up their their <laughs> argument on Benji the Hunted. It is, the best. <laughs> it is it is insane how hard they are going on this on this random shit <laughs> movie. What a great deep cut quote. That was awesome. What else can I say about this? Oh, how about this? For two points, who says I have a bad feeling about this in Empire? Leia. That is correct. In the slugs, space slug, the Exogorth. Now, for one point, who says Luke, I am your father? <laughs> It's uh, not number two. No, it's <laughs> nobody. The quote nobody. is, no, I am your father. It gets misquoted all the time. That's a famous line that everybody has uh, Bernstein bared, right? Correct. <laughs> I mean, I get it. If it was like in front of a crowd, you got to sing on that. Like, Luke, yes, hey, hey, Luke. you, right there with the one hand. <laughs> Wait, raise your right hand and hear me. <laughs> no, your right hand. Yes, you, I'm your father. Man, the editing back and forth, you know, at the at the end of Star Wars, we get, you know, the multi-layered battle, and that's become a tradition of Star Wars. Sometimes it's on two levels, sometimes it's on three levels. But going back and forth between uh, Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, having a lightsaber battle, like, and, and talk about something that this movie wanted to do better than the previous, you know, the hotshot piloting, it wanted to amp up to a thousand, and the lightsaber battle, it wanted to, to dial to 11 as well. Yeah, you also have the benefit of, like, ha not having having a be two old guys like that's true <laughs> I, love, I love star wars you're not oh. dealing with two guys in like they're like 70s fighting yeah i researched the the regimen hamill worked out for four months bodybuilding karate fencing and kendo and he did all his own stunts the only one he didn't do was the backflip out the window everything else uh, was him Wow. He insisted on it. He also he insisted on getting his, his face so. pummeled before before filming yeah yeah the uh <laughs> The, the, the car wreck, right? And and, and uh, there was a theory thrown around last night that he was signed on to a season of Eight is Enough, 
uh, and he would they wouldn't let him out of his contract for Star Wars, so he crashed his car. This was a, 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 a conspiracy theory that was thrown <laughs> it around seems last like a, night. Seems like a, it's like a very easier way to get out of your contract than crashing Probably your car. Probably so. Exactly, yeah. right? Well, they, they they added the Wampa attack because he had had facial surgery. You, you, yeah, you had to, they had to add that to like justify why his face looked. Because like, if you look at like still between the first movie and the second one, he does look a little different. I don't really notice it, but yeah. Yeah, I think if you put them next to each other, though, pro- I probably yeah. would. But I didn't notice either, really. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't notice if you're just watching in the moment. But like, if you like, if you look at photos next to each other. Like, okay, yeah. you look a little, little squarer in the jaw area. And they say it's from from a car wreck. But my, I think, a more less insane conspiracy theory was that no, he just had facial surgery and they made up the car thing. But anyway, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was all an elaborate ruse. That's what Nicole Kidman is saying now. So yeah. she was attacked by a wampa. Is that what she's saying? That's what she's saying. Yes. <laughs> so Hamill's back. Ford's back. We mentioned Fisher, new to the cast. Jeremy Bullock as Boba Fett, our first Boba Fett, who is the real man with no name in this movie. Yeah, they don't mention his name in this one, do they? They don't. I think Lando says Boba Fett is here to Han or something. Going to take you away. Uh, no, he goes. Uh, nor nor was giving Han to this bounty hunter. So I actually, I don't think he ever is named. I don't think he's named drops the next one really yeah so he's even more mysterious yeah well yeah we knew who it was because of the figures yeah absolutely which you could get and chance did you know this that that if you were obsessed with star wars action figures in 78 79 uh leading up to empire strikes back they would send you a boba fett action figure before so you could play for hours with boba fett before you ever went to go see empire strikes back yeah yeah no idea what to do who the dude was what he was like you, you, nope. you know he was a good guy or a bad guy no. And then like he's introducing that scene with like you know Dengar and Forlam and all those other oh. weirdos. You're like I I I love those guys. I mean, talk about what what Star Wars does well. You can always see in certain things. That scene right there, they introduce five bounty hunters that you're never gonna see. Six bounty hunters that you're never gonna see again, except for Boba Fett. And it's just like it's such a thick world. Forlam, Zuckus. Uh, Dengar, Dengar's IG, been through some shit, right? Bosk, yeah, and they all have as much history as Boba Fett on their bodies. You're like, wow, these guys have been, you know, what are these guys? Looks like he fought Godzilla, you know, like Forlom looks like a Godzilla, or uh, Zuckus looks like a Godzilla uh, villain. Yeah, it's like Mothra without wings, right? <laughs> so it's just like it's just like the density and history in every shot. In this lived universe, let's go back to that. The idea of Star Wars was the lived universe. You look at Boba Fett, that is one lived universe of a person. <laughs> he's got dents, he's got... About the Black Series figure. Ooh, I gotta get that. came out. Yeah, I mean, Boba Fett, like, that's a character who, like, the second I saw him, just like, I instantly want to know everything about you. And I want to see you go on and, like, do some, like, cool, badass bounty hunter shit. Right? Yeah. And they never fulfilled the promise of that until the TV show, which was just... so the TV show, yeah. Like, but like the fact that like you can, the fact that he was able to like, just like put characters on the screen like instantly, just, like build that kind of intrigue and that kind of fan around the character, who, like just didn't say anything. Instant. I think it just showed the power of like the franchise and just like Lucas as a creative. Incredible, incredible. And here's a crazy story. Uh, he's Jeremy Bullock is the actor playing Boba Fett, but he's voiced by Jason Wingreen who was uncredited until 2000, and that changed. They started crediting him with the voice. That's the best voice. But Bullock uh, also played a Bespin guard who restrains Leia yes. on, the, on Cloud City because they didn't have anybody. Like, no one wanted to be in a Star Wars movie. Like Chance for 10 points. For 10 points, what's the name of that Bespin guard that uh, Jeremy Bullock plays? Herbie. <laughs> I believe it's Jeremiah Colton. 
But that Ooh. also might be the guy that Jeremy Bullock plays in Revenge of the Sith. So I don't know. <laughs> this is why I lose Star Wars matches. <laughs> uh, also new to the, the the world of Star Wars, the Emperor shows up for the first time. Uh, Palpatine, right. full Rick Baker mask. Yeah, okay. I mean, you were introduced to like the whole, you know, like well, like, like a space monkey. I I got I got the intro to when it was Ian McDermott. <laughs> yeah, this was Marjorie Eaton. Okay. Uh, with a full Rick Baker mask and chimpanzee eyes superimposed onto her face. Now wow. that I, her eyes look so weird when I was looking at Palpatine yesterday. Now it makes sense when I read today. Well, yeah, when I saw him, just did. like, what happened between this movie? Like, did he have like allergic reaction? Eat some bad shrimp? What's, what, what, what happened to you, Sheev? <laughs> and maybe it was originally part Babu Frick, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but like, speaking of the Emperor scene, I, I think this one of the original three, I think it has like the least. Like, the least, like, egregious changes between the, the original special edition. Special edition. Yeah, like, the Palpatine thing, we understand them doing. It's like, like oh, we, yeah, we okay, that's... More, we get some more Wampa stuff. Palpatine is the one thing I don't like, because, like, I, I think it's more sinister of Vader, but it's like, yeah, I know I know Luke Skywalker's alive, but, like, what if he can be turned, where, as opposed to, like, oh, he can't know he's alive because, you know, prequels happen. McDiarmid isn't added until 2004. Till that, uh, not even in the special edition. That was yeah. The special edition was just more Wampa CGI, and we talked about this last night. But there was an awful moment where Luke falls off. You know, he fall. He doesn't fall. He sort of lets go from after he finds out Darth is his father and falls down into the chutes there in Vespin. But they added a ah in with special edition, and my friend Mike always pointed out. What did he trip? Like, no, the point was, <laughs> the point was he sacrificed himself, you know, like it changed the intention. So do what you want with CGI. I think the X-Wing fighters look spectacular in the special edition of Star Wars. But when they changed intention and that changed story. So it was a bad call. And they in fact fixed it later. Yeah, and, that, and that's why I that's why I don't like the change the Emperor dialogue, because, you know, in the original where you're just like, like some of the some of the Skywalkers alive were just like, yeah, I know we could be turned, but like it's as far as like the new one because of the way it prevents this end. He's just like he can't know Luke is alive, so it's like this whole big reveal to him. But I think that Vader knowing that it's Luke Skywalker, knowing that his son, and knowing that he has that potential, and trying to turn him anyway, I think that makes Vader a much more intimidating villain, a much more sinister, much more ah. you know kind of malevolent presence. You get what I'm saying? The special edition makes changes that we never thought of as perfect to begin with, but once we see, oh, just adding him going, ah, makes you realize there was always something really disconcerting about Luke just letting go and leaving it up to us to go, what was the motivation there? Did he believe him? Did he just not want to go on if that was the truth? What, why did he do that? And that? And I never realized that that question ran in my head for decades until the special edition. I was like, oh, you can't do that because we, we, I, I should, it shouldn't be laid down that, oops, I slipped or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> this uh, thing is really slippery. Oh, crap. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's what they actually had originally in the uh, thing. It was whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa! And they're like, I don't know. That's that's a little too far. <laughs> Slide whistle. As for your special editions, they added Tamora Morrison's voice over poor Jason Wingreen. Um, yeah. In that, I mean, scene. I get, it. I mean, I get it, but poor. I Jason get it, Green. but yeah. boy, Wingreen's voice showing up in the non-special edition last night, Paul. I was just like, oh yes, that's the Boba Fett voice that I, you know, the the first hundred times I watched Empire, that was the voice. Yeah. As you wish. No disintegrations this time. <laughs> like, what? What does? What is Boba? Yeah, you, you, you can disintegrate people. <laughs> yeah, and that's been a problem. 
And that, not only is he disgraced, but the Syrian people, it's an issue. It's an issue. <laughs> hey, yeah, uh, Boba, look, I, 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 I'm cool with the whole bad thing, but, like, you know, this whole disintegration, can we just, like, do less of that? <sighs> like, that's how you do after the first time you get to complain about it. Like, yeah. this, is, this is, like, several complaints in. Like, okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to make it clear. I'll tell you right now, in front of everybody, they can everybody, yeah, witnesses. No I'm, disintegration right. this time. Hey, you understand? No. I don't want to single you out. This goes for everybody, but we know who brought in the empty box and said that that was the dead body last time, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing in the box. I, I disintegrated him. That's him. So for all those of you interested in watching probably what's the closest version of the original theatrical release of The Empire Strikes Back, it's probably what we watched last night, which is the 2006 DVD that came out as a two-disc set. The first disc had the special edition, the second had a number of bonus features, including the, they call it the original theatrical cut. It's a little different, but it's the thing the closest you're going to get. It's pulled from a laser disc and restored a little, but not much. Uh, as Adam kept saying throughout the, the show, uh, you get all the grain. You don't want the special edition? Fine. Here's grain. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to clean this up for you. No. Deal with it, idiots. Yeah. Oh, we could slip in the shot that we already remastered of Darth Vader on the bridge where you can't tell that the center triangle is the backdrop and the other ones are... Uh, we fixed that, but we're not putting it in this edition. <laughs> uh, we should probably start wrapping this up. Uh, but, you know, I have a feeling all of our 80s episodes are just going to go like two hours. Because so much to talk about. This is the Ford, you know, we're in the Ford heyday. It's a decade I remember fondly. I remember very fondly. Empire, Raiders, Blade Runner... Oh my gosh. Jedi, Temple of Doom, Witness. I mean, it's just a stupid. Harrison Ford was the actor of yeah. the 80s. Like, yeah. I don't think anybody owned this decade as much as he yeah. did. Movie star. Man, what a movie star. The movie allowed $120 million to go back to the filmmakers, cleared Lucas's debt, and he paid out $5 million in employee bonuses because everyone did such a fine job because he's a rock star. It was number one at the box office for three weeks till it fell behind Holy Moses and Bronco Billy, which I enjoy. Uh, then it went back to number one for seven more weeks. So that's how you become a, you know, two hundred million dollar box. Holy office. Moses and Bronco Billy yeah, beat it for one for week. One weekend. For yeah, one the weekend. Holy Moses crowd really turned out for that one week and never came back. If you want to know what era this movie was released during, during one weekend, it was beat by Holy Moses, W-H-O-L-L-Y Moses, a parody of yeah. something. And Bronco Billy, a great movie, but Empire Strikes Back. The WGA and DGA did not like their members only being credited at the end of the film. So they fined Lucas $250,000 and tried to have the film removed from theaters. Can you imagine if they... And to, to literally remove the style that he created in the first one, that it begins with Star Wars and the opening crawl, absorbs you into it. You don't see all these human names of people that work in California before you go into the space movie. Like, that's that's literally changing the artistic integrity of the movie to... to I want to take people out of this galaxy far, far away <laughs> before they get into it. It's also crazy for, like... Because, like, that's now, like... I feel like that's now the new norm. I feel like it's very rare right. where I see, like, opening credit before a movie. Yeah, comedies only, right? <laughs> yeah, usually comedy, Long sequence of driving eight, the car where, like, PGA and all the, you know. <laughs> and, and, and occasional comic book movie, because I feel like I haven't seen, like, opening credits since, like, the Guardians films. Right. Like, Black Widow, too. They, they, they did it also. But, like, yeah, I feel like... I feel like I don't see, you don't see, like, opening, like, credits anymore. Yeah, Marvel doesn't do that. Yeah, but most movies don't anymore. No, that's true. Well, Lucas got the last laugh because he shot in the UK at Elstree Studios, so that's where he had the film registered, so they couldn't find him. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> So they find Kirshner twenty five thousand. Oh, poor Kirshner! 
Well, didn't and he drop we, out of the Directors Guild after this anyway? You know this. He, Lucas left the WGA, the DGA, and the Motion Picture Association. He's like, enough. I'm going to over here with the Brits. <laughs> so uh, there wasn't much advertisement for the movie, despite the, the, everything it made. And I bring that up, Adam, just because in here we have to insert one of the phone calls Lucas said you could make to hear a recorded message from a cast member getting you excited about The Empire Strikes Back. Adam, play that now. So I ran into Ben Kenobi and Luke Skywalker. I had myself a pretty good little operation. They wanted a ride to Alderaan, and they're willing to pay enough so I didn't have to ask any questions. Now I'm in the middle of a rebellion. Not only that, but Jabba the Hutt's got a price on my head, and he's put Boba Fett on my trail. Something tells me it's not going to get any better when the Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> and we have title. I call that number all the time, by the way. But they did a C-3PO message, a Han Solo message, a Luke Skywalker message, and a, a Princess Leia message. And and I had never found these before. It took a, many YouTube searches over many years before it finally popped up and I, I could prove its existence. The funny thing that popped up the last time was Mark Hamill... Uh, Empire Strikes Back message outtakes. So somebody has uploaded the outtakes of him doing <laughs> Carrie Fisher uh, message outtakes. And then just the Harrison Ford, meaning I think he only did one take. <laughs> there are no outtakes of Harrison Ford's Empire Strikes Back message. It's, it's, it's like Andy and Sam asking for the Blade Runner, the Blade Runner voiceover. Like, I'll do it once and it's all you get. And family photos? Replicants didn't have families either. I got 15 minutes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell was happening to me? It's funny you bring that up because like, that reminds me of like, this is like one, it's like one of the coolest like, pieces of movie marketing I've been a part of in my lifetime. It was around 07 when Transformers was coming out. And a thing you could do, there was a website. You can like have like a robocall where Optimus Prime could call somebody. And like it was actually Peter Cullen doing the voice, so I, I remember like because I, I had a cell phone at the time, like my I just got like this random call, like I I turned it on, it was Optimus Prime, like oh, but oh my God, Optimus Prime is calling me, Mom, look at this, and my mom set it all up, I'm like oh, she was like Mom, Optimus Prime is calling my phone, it's a serious business. <laughs> Was it recorded or was it Peter Cullen killing an afternoon? Uh, I'm not. I, I'm not. Sure, I'm not sure how it was done, but oh no! It was like like Peter Cullen like did did every call. He had like a, like they had like a certain yeah. set like number of responses that you can like program like what you wanted each to say. I'm like you say like hey stop stop watch TV go see and go and goes like we got Septicon stop and we got to find out how when he goes to Transformers the movie in theaters and something like that. But it, it was still cool just to get a call about his friend. And so it, the film is nominated for three Oscars. That's it. Widely considered one of the best films ever made. Well, it's going to be quickly forgotten, Paul. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Best, it's uh, just sci-fi. No, we're talking about like weird sci-fi sequel in 40 years. What are you talking about? It's sci-fi. It's like superhero movies. It's just like, you know, they're disposable. Yeah, there's, 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 like a, there's like a fad. I don't think we talked about them in like 20 years. It wins for best sound. It's nominated for best art direction. I don't know how it doesn't win that. I'd have to see what it would beat it. But, yeah, uh, what, 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 yeah, what oh, a loser. Yeah. All right, hold on. I got to look this yeah, up. Yeah, look while you're there. Find Jeez. out what won best music because uh, John Williams lost, and I get that he repeated oh. some themes. But how about that asteroid field number and the uh, the finale? The, oh the, y- God, the Yoda right? theme where it's that stardish. Oh, yeah. Da, 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 da. Just... The debut of the Imperial March. Oh, the Imperial March. Oh, oh yes. my God. And boy, the complete piece of the Imperial March that plays in the credits with just the full orchestra piece of it. My God. What am I looking up here? Art direction? Oh, God. So Empire Strikes Back loses to... I mean, but this is such a classic Oscar thing to do, right? (laughs) Which movie do you think it lost to? Uh, Well, okay. Kajimusha, uh, which is... uh, uh, 
Is that the uh, yeah. Coppola and Kurosawa one? I think that's Ka- Kurosawa, right? Kachimusha? Yeah. The Elephant Man, Coal Miner's Daughter, or Tess. Now, think like an Oscar voter in 1981. Now, this is music or art direction? This is art direction. Art direction. For the Coal Miner's Daughter? No. Damn it. Uh, something. Okay, this has got to have something better than the Cloud City carbon freezing room. That's something right. better than that. Something better than well, uh, something better than Hoth, Cloud City, Dagobah, <laughs> <laughs> the interiors of the ships, the exteriors of the ships. But according yeah. to an Oscar voter in 1980, it was what? Tess. Oh, come on. Tess? Come oh, on. my God. They, they just love Polanski. They loved it. If it was shot <laughs> if it was shot and diffused, like uh, if there's such a diffused movie, it's like, oh, man, we're giving that art direction. Meanwhile, Tess and Coal Miner's Daughter take place outside mostly <laughs> or in cabins. <laughs> what, what was the uh, other award it lost? Best the, score. Oh, and best so let me guess, Urban Cowboy? Ah! Fame? Okay. Come on. What was it? Okay, hold on. Let's see. Well, Fame was winner for original song. Uh, that's true. Original score. Okay, original score. Yes, fame won for original score. Uh, beating out Tess, The Elephant Man, Altered States, and The Empire Strikes Back. Score! It, it was fame? Uh, it yeah, was fame. Yeah. Who Jeez. already had best song, and okay, that has a far better song than Empire Strikes Back. I'll give it that. So, lost to... <laughs> I'm assuming. I'm assuming that's the score of the students getting together to put on a big. Or show. the adagio for strings for showing your breasts to a casting uh, a director or something. I mean, there's probably some <laughs> other score in there, but you know. <laughs> uh, they do win a special award for visual effects achievement. Brian Johnson, Richard Edlund, Dennis Muren, Bruce Nicholson, some of the familiar faces, all won for that. Lucas again. Here's another rock star thing. I wasn't done with his rock star stories. He pushed for a nomination for visual effects. Yeah, so it's a special <laughs> Oscar outside of uh, the uh, categories. But Lucas pushed for best supporting actor for Frank Oz. Didn't get it, but oh. he wanted it. Yeah, should have been. Wow. I mean, yeah. the, the the attitude towards like mocap voice stuff like that. It's still still oh, not, still not giving the no. There. And that would have been hated at this time too. Like, no, are you kidding me? That's not acting. It's People still think people think comedy's not acting still. So you know that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so they it's entered into the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry in 2010, as a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. And here's the most important fact I think people want to know: out of 160 guests on the Movie Guys Movie Showcast podcast who were polled, five voted at their favorite movie of all time, including. Ooh, where were they? Christian Simpson, who is uh, an actor who uh, appeared on the... Actually, he appeared on Countdown to Nine. He appeared in uh, Phantom Menace and does voices all throughout the Star Wars galaxy. Eric Walker, your star of the Ewok adventure. Ewok movies, right? And prog rock artist. And our fellow competitor in the movie trivia, Schmodown, Joseph Scrimshaw, calls this his favorite movie of all time. So, ah. there you go. You, 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 you can add me to that list because I always, I always say the Star Wars, the Star Wars Riddle Show is my favorite movies of all time. And this is my favorite of those. So I guess by proxy, this is my favorite, my favorite video of all time. Nice. There you go. I will nice put you on that list. All right. He's on the list. Uh, Adam Roll. Uh, anything else anyone has to say about Empire? Um, movie, movie is absolute perfection. I know we hear nothing else. It, it is, is absolute hands down. Hands down the best Star Wars movie of all time. And Harrison Ford is excellent. Let's wrap with the Ford definitive list of essentials. Uh, Adam, we kept track during last night's, uh, per- last night's uh, screening of The Empire Strikes Back. Does Harrison Ford in this film have righteous anger? 
Some great righteous anger on display, Paul. I didn't write down any specific lines, but there's some righteous anger going on. You could use a good kiss. <laughs> Does he point, Adam? We love when Harrison Ford points. <sighs> we love sure. when Harrison Ford points. We get some really quality points here. Uh, I have, Paul, that he points ten times, and he points with righteous anger three times. Ooh. <laughs> amongst those are, amongst the shouts are, hurry up, Goldenrod. Um, shut him up or shut him down. Um, let's see. Turn her around. Um, no, 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 not this one goes there, here. That one goes there. So there's a plethora of great shouts and a plethora of great points and even a few points and shouts. Is there smile and charm and overload of smile and charm? Yeah, there's one thing I didn't say. Let me, let me just jump off of smile and charm sure, here. Yeah. Pulling together Princess Leia and Han Solo is a movie-long task. It begins with their first conversation in the corridor of Hoth. Uh, you know, there are there are moments where he is a rogue. He, you know, she falls in his lap and she gets mad at him. But, he, but he's doing all the charming stuff. He's, you know, he's being that jerk. You know, you jerk. And you know, I'm sorry, I haven't got time for anything else. But it's all working. Like, he's cute. <laughs> And then he does the very slow handhold that's interrupted by C-3PO. But that whole long move there is what gets us a step closer to the look that they have between the two of them on, on Cloud City before he goes for, they find Darth Vader's there, where she says, then as soon as the Falcon's repaired, you're as good as gone. That's the next step. And then his look there says a lot, like maybe he's not gone. Maybe he's here for good, you know, but we don't find out. And then uh, in that carbon freezing, the moment he might die, she's got to say it to him. And then the most perfect Han Solo line ever. You know, I love you. I know. Oh, it's so funny. I laughed out loud so hard last night. But the relationship between these two, what a great ramp up to that moment. The whole movie leads to that moment that is so good between those two. So, yeah, smile and charm. They have their own arc just in this movie, let alone throughout the trilogy. Uh, does he hit a guy? Just Lando and Lando. Just one. <laughs> Just one. That's good. That's good. Didn't punch anybody in the first Star Wars. Definitely punches someone in this one. Yeah, and he gets hit by the Bespin guards after he hits Lando. So, right. That's it. But that leads to the overall question: What would you say, Chance? How Harrison Ford is he in this? In a percentage scale? On a percentage scale, I would say. I would say he's about at a 90% Ford because, you know, I feel like if he got his ass kicked a little more or kicked a little more ass with his fist, <laughs> I think he'd be at a at full Ford. He's at mostly Ford, right. but he's still at, but he's still at a great level. You know, that's a good point. I said a hundred percent, but perhaps more fighting would have more, a, little, a little more fisticuffs would have brought him up to a, a full Ford. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seems weird to call this a 90% Ford, but, Paul, the baseline for how Harrison Ford is he is Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Yes, you right. Know, he's a little less Harrison Ford here than in Raiders of the Lost Ark. As weird as it sounds to say, oh, he's at 90% Harrison Ford here. Um, he makes up for it in charm, though. I mean, he's, he's he charming does. as Indiana Jones, but his charm here and is... And pointing. And pointing. Yes, his charm here is more flamboyant. You know? a, an enormous character arc in this movie is dependent upon his charm it's not in raiders and so that's uh you know you so yeah i can see putting him at 100 percent harrison ford here he's just a different 100 percent 
combo of, of all the Harrison Ford things we like than he is in Raiders, right? So there you go, people. If you were wondering if you should see this, there's a high Harrison Ford percentage happening. Everybody's seen this. What am I saying? Everybody's seen this movie. But that does take the Harrison Ford Everybody's seen it. That takes the career count for punches to uh, fifth for 15 movies. That's nine. That's nine. nine. He, hit the, he hit three guys and forced him from never. Yeah, that that, that, ca- that count is going to explode in the next episode. <laughs> exactly. And I it really him. is. Zero punches for Dead Heat on a Merry-Go-Round. One punch for Love. Uh, Chance, do you know the movie Love, <laughs> L-U-V? A lot of people don't. I've heard of it, yes. Never seen I've had the pleasure of seeing it, but I've heard of it. That is the very first time Harrison Ford punches someone on screen, and I love telling people this fact uh, of brand new. Do you know who he punches in that movie? His very first on-screen punch. We were Ooh, shocked to first, find. His first punch. I don't know. Who does he punch? Jack Lemon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, talk about the most hapless, the perfect hapless actor, and you're like, He's going to get punched in any movie just by some random thing that he's put himself into. Happens to be Harrison Ford in that one. The, mo- the most inoffensive actor. It's funny that his biggest movies to date, Star Wars, American Graffiti, you know, Apocalypse Now, it's a small yeah. part, but it's a big movie. Yeah, not a lot of punching. This is no. the first punch in a big movie. But yeah, mm-hmm. Forced Him from Never Own, Hanover Street, The Frisco Kid, Love. That's where all the punchings happen. <laughs> And, uh, but again, it will change with our next show, and our next show will be Raiders of the Lost Ark, as we see oh Harrison Ford transcend to best leading man of all time. Here we go. For now, that wraps The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, if you have anything to say about the film, chime in at the movie guys everywhere. There's social media and or comment on whatever platform you're listening to this on, if it's uh, Podbean or iTunes or Amazon Music. It's everywhere. Um, and it's even on YouTube, where we put up a, you know, just... It's simply just to listen to, but it's on YouTube so you can find it. Uh, and thanks to Chance Ellison. Chance, where are people hey. finding you and your show? Of course, thanks for having me. Uh, Twitter, Instagram at ChanceWars underscore 91. My show is Notorious by Chance. Me, me and my co-host, Russell Howell. We come in, we you know, talk trailers, talk news, talk sports. When, when, it's, when it's popular, uh, we just come in every week and uh, you know talk about a different movie and uh, have, have a good time. And we're also in the middle of our action star summers where we're every month in the summer we're looking at a movie from a famed action star. We looked at Arnold Schwarzenegger. We looked at Terminator. We're looking at Sylvester Stallone, his, his uh, contemporary. We'll be watching uh, First Blood and reviewing that. And yeah, find me on Twitter at uh, the Movie Trish Modown where I do compete occasionally from time to time in various divisions. He knows some stuff about Star Wars. And watch the watch the free for all where I, I think I, I I survived and chance didn't there right that's the one time that's I think that's the one time I I will have anything uh, coming close to a defeat of Chance Elephant. <laughs> yeah, that, that that was the thing that happened. We, we, Paul Yam and I went down, and you said you survived. That was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, come back for the next show for Raiders of a Lost Ark. It'll be a great show. Trust me. I'm spending half my time dodging Imperial ships and the other half avoiding Her Holiness. Something tells me it's not going to get any better when the Empire Strikes Back. The Empire Strikes Back comes to a theater near you on May the 21st, 1980.